Our Father in heaven, open our eyes that we might see Jesus in the book of Joshua. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. I feel compelled to say that sometimes when the scripture is read, we ask everyone to stand, and sometimes we don't. You may wonder why. Or you might even blame Catherine for forgetting to have you to stand. But I told her, let them sit. Uh, The reason I do that is simply because I want you to know you don't have to stand every time we read the scripture. Imagine what my sermon would be like if I said, and the Bible says over here, and boom, everyone has to get up. And then I finish and you go down. Then I quote a verse and everyone gets up. You say, well, that's ridiculous. Yes. And is there something good about standing when the scripture is read? Yes. It's a position of honor, but it's not required. And so one of the things that I want to do as we worship and follow God is to make sure we know what's required and what isn't, where areas of liberty exist and where they don't. So let's not get too committed to our traditions, as good as they might be, so that we might be totally committed to God's word, which never changes. You say, but pastor... You read in Nehemiah, when they read the word, everyone stood up. Yeah, and they held up their hands too. Why don't you do that? And everyone yelled amen. We don't seem to do that. It's amazing to me how we like to pick and choose from Scripture. Um, I should now pray and then start the sermon. But we'll just go ahead and start from here. It was several years ago that we were taking our tour in Israel, and you may not know it, but... Most every time we go, we have the same guide, a wonderful Jewish man whose real name is Abraham, but he goes by the name of Peach. And we had turned on a different road, and we're actually going a different route than I had gone before. And I'm sitting up front with Peach, and he turned to me, and he said to me, this is the Valley of Agilon. And I must have had a puzzled look on my face, because he then said to me, you know, Joshua's long day. It is really embarrassing when a Bible teacher doesn't know his Bible. And uh, I was a bit embarrassed, and, and then I began to think about that, and, and it just encourages me to dig more in the Scriptures and become more acquainted with them. So I figured out it would really be good for us together to figure out what this long day is, what it was, why it was, And how it affects us today. For as the scripture said, there has never been a day like it before or since. Turn to Joshua chapter 10. We're continuing our series in the book of Joshua. The whole idea that the Hebrew community is entering into the land promised 500 years before. The promise given to Abraham. And now they're finally realizing it. And God has given us many promises that we need to enter into and claim uh, our possessions. And so the Bible tells us that in chapter 10, uh, they are going to advance in, into the land of Canaan. But we need a little background. Uh, chapters 9 through 11 really form a unit. It is a, a unit of, uh, of the kingdom or the the people of God going forward to occupy the land but it started in chapter 9 with a treaty that was not planned 
Our last message was on this treaty in chapter 9, but our last message in Joshua was in November. So let me give you just a brief review. And you remember that this group from Gibeon actually came to Joshua and they said, we're from a far country, and they deceived Joshua. They made it look like they had been traveling for a long distance. And really the distance between Gibeon and Gilgal is only about 20 miles. But they had moldy food and old clothes and they looked haggard and I'm sure they were, they were playing it up as they uh, uh, kind of limped along and said, we've come, make a treaty with us. Now Joshua was not supposed to make a treaty with any of the nations, any of the peoples in the land of Canaan, but thinking that they had come from somewhere else and believing their story without investigating, he made a treaty with the Gibeonites only to find out that they were his neighbors. But the treaty was made in the presence of God on an oath. They had promised on an oath similar to saying as the Lord God who lives in heaven is promised Uh, things to us so we promise to you and since God's name was involved it's an oath they couldn't break so the Gibeonites became allied with the Israelites they were afraid that they couldn't stand up against Israel they had heard what God had done to Ai and to Jericho and you notice how close those cities are and so they joined in league with them But when we come to chapter 10, we find out that the response of the surrounding neighborhood kings, and that's what they were, little city-states with individual kings, they were not happy. When uh, the Gibeonites defected, that really put all these other kings at greater risk. And so they became angry. Notice what happened. Verse 1, chapter 10. Now Adonai Zedek, who is the king of Jerusalem, and you'll notice on the map that Jerusalem is just below the the J, or approximately below the J in Jericho, and so they were closer to the action than anyone else. They had watched Jericho fall and Ai fall, and now Gibeon has joined in league with Israel So the king of Jerusalem heard that Joshua had taken Ai, totally destroyed it. Shockwaves went through the land. He had heard what had happened to the king of Jericho. And that the people of Gibeon had made a treaty of peace with Israel and were living near them. Only about six miles between Gibeon and Jerusalem. He and his people were very much alarmed. By the way, this is a reoccurring theme throughout the book happening multiple times in chapter 2, chapter 5, and chapter 9. Here again in chapter 10, there was great fear so that the hearts of the people in the land melted. They had heard what God had done in Egypt. They had heard what God had done to Jericho and Ai, and they were much alarmed. Now, Gibeon was an important city, verse 2 tells us, like one of the royal cities, which means it was large, and uh, probably had a king residing in it, at least political influence. It was larger than Ai. And all of its men were great warriors. So now they're not only losing uh, a great royal city, they're losing part of their great warrior team, their own army. 
or at least the great warriors are going over to the enemy's side. So Adonai Zedek, this is verse 3, king of Jerusalem, appealed to Horham, king of Hebron, Piram, king of Jarmuth, uh, Japhia, king of Lachish, and Derbe, king of Eglon. Come up and, and help me attack Gibeon, he said, because it's made peace with Joshua and the Israelites. So these five kings, which are in the southern region of the area, these five kings, who are Amorites, joined with the other kings, or joined with the king of Jerusalem, they joined forces, they moved up with all their troops and took positions against Gibeah, ready to attack it, or had actually begun some skirmishes on the outskirts. And so here is a situation in which the enemies now are attacking one of their own who in their eyes has become a traitor. So what you have in verse 6 is simply an SOS. The Gibeonites send word to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal, don't abandon your servants. Come up quickly and save us, help us. Because all the Amorite kings from the hill country have joined in league against us. So what is Joshua going to do? He was made a fool of in chapter 9 because he didn't investigate who these people were. I think his approval rating as a leader had plummeted. And what would you do when you've received a personal offense from someone? i tell you what I might think of doing. Good luck. Right? I mean, if you don't go up, what's going to happen? They're going to get wiped out. But they're the people you didn't want to be in treaty with anyhow. They're the people you were supposed to kill anyhow. You could justify it many ways. They'd made me look like a fool, and now they're getting their just desserts. That's what Joshua could have said. Maybe that's what we might have said. But Joshua was a man of his word. We just don't have much of that today. More importantly, he was a man of God. And he had taken an oath in God's name. To protect these people, not to destroy these people. And so Joshua keeps his promise. Up to this point, Joshua had only fought individual cities. Now he's fighting a league of nations. Adonai Zedek had formed a, a coalition. He had orchestrated the opposition coalition. And they were intimidating but Joshua kept his promise. And the Bible tells us that he responded, verse 7. So he marched up from Gilgal with his entire army, including all the best fighting men. Now remember, when he fought Ai, he only took part of the army and probably left some of the best soldiers at home. But he took everyone in this trip. The Lord said, do not be afraid of them. I've given them into your hand. No one will be able to withstand you. Verse 9, and after an all-night march from Gilgal. Now think about it. That's 20 miles in a night. Uphill. In the dark. <laughs> Uphill because you're going from one of the lowest places on the earth, the Jordan Rift Valley, 3,000 uh, feet uh, elevation up into the mountains. 
I mean, this almost sounds like the way I used to talk to my kids about how I used to go to school 20 miles <laughs> uphill in the snow. Boy, that's commitment. And they did it. And so their march took them past the ruins of Jericho and the ruins of Ai, which would have been an encouragement to the people of God because Joshua's going to keep his promise and he caught them off guard. For years, generals have taken this strategy to surprise the enemy. I'm sure it wasn't anything new, but I'm told that General uh, Stonewall Jackson used to study the book of Joshua to learn how to maneuver his troops and he also one night marched his troops an unbelievable distance to surprise uh, the northern forces. He caught them off guard the scripture says and he defeated them they were thrown into confusion verse 10. God gave him a great victory at Gibeon and then he pursued them down the hill, so west of Gibeon. You've got the slopes now going to the plains toward the Mediterranean Sea. He pursued them along the road going up to Beth Horan. And he cut them down all the way to Azekah and Makedah. And we'll see those places in just a minute. So we ask ourselves the question, first of all, whenever you study the Bible, what was the original intent for the story being included in the inspired canon of Scripture? Maybe you don't say it that way, but that's what you think. Why was this written? Why is it in the Bible? And it's in the Bible, I think, for several big reasons. Number one, it advances the salvation story of the Messiah connected with the people of God who were chosen to bring the word and to bring Jesus to us. And so what you have in the five books of Moses is now transitioning in the book of Joshua so that we can get into the times of the kings and uh, the monarchy and, uh, and on through the difficult times of the judges. But God is keeping his promises. That's what the book of Joshua is all about. God is keeping the promise he made to his people to deliver them to bring a Messiah to them. And also this very important added lesson. God fights for his people. That's what the book of Joshua tells us. So we don't want to remove it out of its original context. And we want to appreciate how God is orchestrating all of these things. To bring the plan of salvation to a lost people on planet earth. But as Kent Hughes says, a great Bible teacher who was longtime pastor of a college church in Wheaton, this is for us. We shouldn't read it as though it's for Joshua and his gang hundreds of years ago. No, this is for us. And yet we've got to be careful as we apply it to our day because some things obviously are different. But there are principles that transcend the ages and the times so you and I are involved not in a physical battle but a spiritual battle that's been the motif of the book of Joshua we have a spiritual warfare going on this is connected to Ephesians chapter 6 we must put on the armor of God and fight our enemies they're not flesh and blood they're principalities and powers but we still must fight them and so there are lessons here for us to learn 
in our own battles. Number one, we must do the fighting. It's interesting to note that uh, the Lord said to Joshua, verse 8, don't be afraid of them, I have given them into your hands. That's past tense. And yet, even though the battle is won, they must enter the battle and win it. They're not fighting to obtain victory, they're fighting to receive the victory already given to them. That is such an important spiritual point. You and I are total victors in Jesus Christ. We are more than conquerors. Jesus has won the battle. He has put death to death. He has defeated the devil. And yet we are not to sit back and say, great, I guess I don't have to do anything. No, we are commanded to obtain our possessions. We are commanded to fight the good fight, which is God's fight, by faith. We must battle. So this whole first idea is that you and I must have some sense of responsibility in fighting our own spiritual battles. It's interesting to note that the Fleeing armies that were running away from Joshua had more strength than Joshua's army that had marched all night. So the enemy was out distancing them. Joshua's army was exhausted and yet they had to keep going. You and I are called to fight the good fight of faith. And I like the fact that Joshua is doing that. But let's add to that, not only are we to do the fighting, but we must also do the praying. And that prayer is based on the promise of verse 8. The prayer comes later, but verse 8 is the promise of God, which was given to them at the very beginning. You can go back to chapter 1, and there it is in verse 5. Don't be afraid of them. Be strong and courageous. Don't be discouraged. I've given them into your hand. The victory is yours. No one will be able to withstand you. So you and I pray based on the promises of God. We understand that God is the one who does the impossible. And when he commands us to do something, he will give us the strength, the wisdom to accomplish that task, whatever it may be. We must pray according to the will of God. Read 1 John chapter 5, and it says that when we bring our request to the Lord, we know that he hears us, and when we pray according to his will, he hears us in the sense of not just hearing words, but responding in activity, responding to our request or our burden, whatever it is. It is interesting in Ephesians chapter 6 that the fighting that you and I do against spiritual powers must be done couched in prayer. Above all, Paul says, pray with all prayer. Isn't that an interesting phrase? Pray with all kinds of prayers. Pray always with all kinds of prayers. Prayer sometimes is adoration, sometimes it's confession, sometimes it's praise and thanksgiving, sometimes it's request and supplication. Use all those kinds of prayers 
and pray according to the will of God all the time. And that's how you and I fight our spiritual battles. And so we have his unique prayer, which we're going to look at in a minute, in verse 12. And God responded to that prayer in an amazing way. I think that's one of the big lessons of the chapter. The way God delights in answering our prayers. Not in the same way he did for Joshua, but it's the same God that we pray to. Who has the same power as he did in that day. And we must be confident when we come to him in prayer. And then there's a third thing, and that is this. When we pray and we fight in God's name, God fights for us. In fact, we must have God fight for us because we do not have the ability or the prowess to win the battle. So Joshua keeps his word and God keeps his word and fights for his people. So the scripture tells us, and it's not necessarily in chronological order, but it does tell us in verse 9, after the all-night march, they surprised the enemy. There was confusion, and they defeated them at Gibeon in a great victory. The, but, but the battle went on. They had to pursue the enemy who was running away. And without the strength to keep up with them, it's very possible that they could have run and hidden somewhere and lived to fight another day. So in verse 11, as they fled before Israel on the road down from Beth Horon to Azekah, the Lord hurled large hailstones down on them from the sky, and more of them died from the hailstones than were killed by the swords of the Israelites. That, my friend, is what we call a miracle. And God does them so easily. And so frequently that we take them into, uh, into our own life, regard them as normal. I breathe in and breathe out. I've been doing that for quite a few years. And my friend, it's a miracle. But at, at every breath, I don't think, say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I mean... I've got to do some work, but I, I need to forget that that's an amazing miracle. But also understand that the word miracle sometimes refers to those, that are, those things that happen in life that are above normal. And this indeed was. Not the hailstones coming down, but coming down in such a way that they actually took out the soldiers. Now, if I were Joshua, I might say, Lord, this is cool. You know, we can't keep up with them. I like what you're doing. Hey, how about we just sit here, have a banquet. We're tired. Let's, let's have a picnic. And why don't you continue the battle? How about a few strategic lightning bolts? Take them out. If you read the book of Job, you'll see that God is the one who sends the rain and sends the hail and sends the snow and sends the lightning. But it's interesting, God wants us to fight his battles in his strength. When we pray for help, we need to remember that we're asking God to give us the strength to do the job. In Joshua's prayer, he doesn't say, Lord, take them out. He says, 
Give us more time so we can get the job done. So on the day, verse 12, that the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said, in the presence of the Lord and in the presence of Israel. And now he's quoting a book that was known to everyone called the book of Jashur. It is non-canonical, which simply means it's not part of our Bible, it's not inspired, it's history. It was a book filled with poetry and heroic deeds of the people of God. It was a good book, but it was not an inspired book. But even this book quotes what happened ultimately and Joshua's prayer that was given at least his prayer was recorded in that book as well. O sun, stand over Gibeon. O moon, over the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation avenged itself of its enemies as written in the book of Jashur. The sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. And there's never been a day like it. So this is God fighting not only with the hailstones, the throwing down of the hail, but the stopping of the sun. And now it's left for us to try to understand in some way what this actually means. The principle is God fights for us, but we must fight. And God fights for us when we pray. When we pray, he shows up. And the hail is not a coincidence. I once heard someone say coincidence is God's middle name. (laughs) When you say that was just a coincidence, what you're saying is actually God was behind it all. Indeed he is. But what is this long day? So the liberals, and I use that term in the sense of understanding scripture's authority, liberals or progressives believe that the Bible is filled with errors, that it is not sufficient, that it is not trustworthy, that it is not a God-breathed book, but it is flawed by the pen of man. It is inspirational to a point, but you can't trust it. It literally cannot be embraced. Those people say, well, this is poetry, like the book of Jashur. It's just a poetic description. It really didn't happen, but it's a way to explain that uh, although the day was not longer in time, they got more done. The longest day. But I do believe that such an approach to Scripture will lead us to a position of denying the Bible and leaving faith in God and becoming humanistic in all of our philosophy and our religion. It's more than figurative. So it's literal, it's literal. So how did God do it? And here's the answer. I have no idea. Now those who study astronomy say that this is impossible. Uh, Planetary disruption would cause cosmic and terrestrial chaos. And it's true. If the earth somehow is stopped from its rotation or slowed down, there will be chaos everywhere. I understand that. But I believe that God, the God who's strong enough to slow down the earth, can also control the chaos in other places. 
Because the earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof, because he's the one who planted it on the seas. Here's some ideas. Maybe it was a total eclipse and you just couldn't see the sun and the moon. Bad idea. Maybe the earth's rotation slowed so that there was a longer day and God took care of the chaos that would have resulted. Here's an interesting idea. Francis Schaeffer kind of leans to this one, the great evangelical theologian. The earth tilted on its axis so that the daylight was extended like the daylight uh, at the North Pole in certain seasons. Some say maybe it was a localized reflection or refraction of the sun's rays, which only in that area extended the light for a period of time. But here's my favorite one, and this is what I cling to. It's probably something we've never thought of. But it was a miracle, and God did it. We, we can't understand some of his things and how he works. But he extended the daylight so that the enemies couldn't run and hide in the dark. He extended the day somehow miraculously so Joshua could win the battle. But here's the thing. It was a miracle in answer to prayer. Verse 14 is a key verse in this entire chapter. There's never been a day like this before since when the Lord listened to a human being. The word listen means to obey. Kenneth Matthew, Matthew says this is stunning language that God uses to describe how he answers prayer. Underline this, learn this, write it in your prayer diary. When the Lord listened to a human being and responded. Now, I'm not saying that our prayers change, change uh, the sovereign, perfect agenda of God. Here again is a miraculous thing. God moves in mysterious ways and he moves in answer to our prayers, but he's sovereign and he knows what he's doing. Our prayers are more to change us than they are to change God. And yet still these illustrations show that he loves when his people believe he's big enough to do it. Now you say, ah, man, I'm going to do this the next time I'm, you know, out uh, on the beach and it's such a beautiful day. The sun is setting, but man, I want a longer day. So Lord, as you did for Joshua, extend the day. May I remind you, this has not happened before or since. <laughs> And it has to be for God's great purposes, not just for our personal pleasure. God defies his own natural laws, the laws of physics, the laws of logic, and prolongs daylight as he listened to a human being. Stunning language. And then I want you to note, notice the next thing it says, surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. And that's what you and I need. We are not sufficient to do the work on our own. So it says in verse 15 that they went to the camp in Gilgal. But before they did that, the five kings had fled and hidden in a cave in Machtelah, in, in Machida. 
And Joshua said, roll some big rocks over the mouth of that and guard it and then continue to pursue your enemies, verse 19. And so they did that. And after they had finished destroying them completely, however, notice in verse 20, a few were left who reached their fortified cities. Interesting. They destroyed them completely, but a few got away. Read all of the scripture. It's interesting that the city of Jerusalem was not defeated or is not mentioned as one of the defeated cities, nor the city of Jarmuth. In fact, Jerusalem was not taken until 400 years later when David as king took it and defeated the Jebusites. It's interesting, too, that the, the list of cities that we're going to see in a moment don't precisely match the names of the kings, which simply means these kings uh, ruled over a larger region. It's not a problem. But they opened up the, the mouth of the cave, moved the rocks after the battle. They got the kings out. And notice, this is verse 22. Joshua commanded uh, the army commanders to put their feet on the necks of the kings before they exterminated them. And he quoted a verse of scripture, again from chapter one, don't be afraid, don't be discouraged, be strong and courageous. God said he would defeat your enemies. I say, wait a minute, that doesn't seem very kind. Remember these nations are without excuse. They heard what God had done and did not repent like Rahab and the Gibeonites. Justice demands a corresponding measure of retribution. Reminiscent of Pharaoh, who saw God's wonders and never repented. And the judgment upon him and his army was just. We don't know how long it took to finish up this mop-up effort, but the way it started was to eliminate the kings. And I just want you to see the imagery. They put their feet on the necks of the kings. This is very Middle Eastern. It was practiced among the people in all the armies and battles of that day. It was a symbol of total defeat. It was a statement of humiliation and a demonstration of power. It's kind of us, kind of like us taking a victory lap. Right? In NASCAR, you win the race and you get the flag and you take the victory lap or you spin around a few times and and in sports they have their own traditions first kings 5 now get this first kings 5 says that god puts his enemies under his what feet puts them under his In Matthew 22, the father said to Jesus, I want you to sit at my right hand until I put all of my enemies under your feet. New Testament imagery of the Old Testament battles. Or here's one of my favorite. This is 1 Corinthians 15. After talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it says the end will come when the father hands over the kingdom of God to the Son, after he's destroyed all dominion and authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. 
For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says everything is put under him, it's clear that this does not include the Father. Nor has everything visibly been put under the feet of Christ. But he's already put death to death. And what we have here is this beautiful picture of Jesus Christ as our Savior, warrior, victor. You and I cannot defeat our enemies without the power of Jesus Christ. And so the mop-up campaign, here's a brief picture of the description of the southern cities that were conquered, verse 29 all the way through verse 39. Joshua subdued the whole region, verse 40 says, in one campaign. And then notice verse 42 It says that the Lord fought for Israel. There it is. Verse 14 and verse 42. At the heart of the text and at the end of the chapter, let me give you the big lesson so you don't forget it. God must fight for you. And when he does, there's a sense of victory. Isn't it great to know that the same God who delivered such miraculous Victories like these in the book of Joshua is still the same God who listens to a human being and fights for us and defeats our foes. So remember, he's watching, he knows, and he answers every prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is once again so encouraging to see that this inspired book that gives us the history of redemption moves along the story by campaigns setting the people of God in the land of God where the Son of God will be born and the Son of God will die and the Son of God will come back to rule and to reign forever and forever. And we are reminded that we too have battles that must be fought by the power of God and the only way we can connect with you is through prayer. So help us to do that today. In Jesus' name, amen.